Welcome to the Cult of Pedagogy podcast. This is Jennifer Gonzalez welcoming you to episode one, where we interview Kim, who is a middle school ESL teacher. Cult of Pedagogy is a website devoted to building a community of people who are unnaturally obsessed with all things education. Please visit www.cultofpedagogy.com to find great articles, teacher forums, book and product reviews, and other podcasts. If you're a teacher nerd, you'll find a home at Cult of Pedagogy. And now, without further ado, here's episode one. So I am here with Kim, and Kim is uh, an ESL teacher at a uh, sort of medium-sized suburban school in the Midwest, and um, why don't you just describe the population that you work with? Sure. The one in my classroom, or the one the one at the school, we have this, about, yeah, about type of school. 600 students, uh, 80% free and reduced lunch, um, lower income population heavy needs, high needs, socioeconomically and academically. Um, And then within our school, our area is actually a resettlement spot for refugees. So we have what they call a refugee intake center, an international center that services refugees who get funneled through the system into our city. So um, my school has a population of refugees from Oh, I don't even know which country. I ended up with eight countries and 11 languages and a group of 15 students this year. So it was the most diverse group I've had. But uh, Somalia, Iraq, um, Tanzania, Rwanda, Burundi, uh, Burmese students, and then some non-refugee kids who were just in because their parents were going to a local university here. So kids from Saudi Arabia, um, a student from Japan, and then I had a Cuban student, a Honduran student. I had a crazy collection of kids this year. Wow. It was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it was awesome. And is it, I have this on here, is it ESL? Is it ELL? Has, has the terminology changed? It depends on who you're talking to. Um, I, I use ELL because it's English language learning. Mm-hmm. I had a student in my class who spoke four languages. So to consider English his second language would be inaccurate. Okay. Um, he was on his fifth. So that's why that term has kind of fallen out of use. Is, and then LEP means limited English proficiency. People, for some reason, don't like that idea of saying someone's limited in any way, even if you are, you know. Okay. I'm a limited runner, but right. I'm still running. <laughs> yeah. I'm not past. <laughs> you know? I'm okay with it. <laughs> okay, and this so. is this is a middle school. I'm not sure if I said that before. So it's middle school kids, six through, no, seventh through eighth. Seventh and eighth grade. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ages 12 to 15 in my program. There's a okay. big range because when refugee students come into the country, if they don't have academic records, they're placed based on their age. If they do have academic records, they're placed based on what grade they left in their former country. So some of the kids were 14 and in seventh grade in their home country. They're 15 and eighth grade here. Other kids get placed based on their age. So I had one, one kid was 12 turning 13 mid-year this year. He was my youngest student. So, How long have you been in this? Actually, how long have you been teaching ELL in general? 1995. 
Um, I took a, a couple of years off to try something else. Um, got a little classroom burnout and needed to spend some time. I was doing some team building challenge course leadership stuff for a couple of years. But okay. I got my master's in 1997 and I taught while I was doing my master's um, in ESL. So 95 okay. to 97. So I've been teaching since about 95. So that, that has always been the plan then to oh, yeah. teach ESL. Because I yeah. know that there are, there's a group within the ESL teaching population that kind of fell backwards into it. Right. Due to maybe there was nobody else to do it. I think it depends on the state that you're working in. Um, I was a little shocked in my current state that you could not get a teaching endorsement or a teaching certificate in ELL. Uh, It's an endorsement in the state. And so I thought that was kind of shocking to me since it's a very complex subject area in in its own right. So um, since I started in 95, there's such a range. You can get, you know, if you're interested in public education, you can get an endorsement added onto your regular certificate. Um, Some states recognize an entire ELL certificate. Some states recognize a master's in TESOL. There's programs that, you know, so it just kind of depends on what you're looking to do in the field for... It's, it's not yet a well-defined, like, not in, concrete not kind in of this a state. path. Not in this state, okay. for sure. Okay. Um, I don't know about other states because I didn't come into public education on a traditional path. I was okay. actually surprised when I got into public education and found out okay. what I needed to do to be allowed to teach kids. So the, the ESL teaching that you did in other places was in, in a private school? I taught um, a year overseas in Slovakia. Mm-hmm. I spent six years teaching in a high school, private school. Mm-hmm. I spent a year at Utah State University in their intensive English program. And then I moved um, and am teaching <laughs> in a middle school. So I've taught about every level of education that right. you can. Okay. And you've been at this position for how many Seven years? Seven years. Seven years. Okay. So what made you choose this field? Um... I wish that there was some fantastic story about how I got led into teaching, but I got to the end of my undergraduate program, (laughs) and I was an English major, which, you know, my parents were really quiet on the phone when I announced that one. (laughs) (laughs) And my first semester of my senior year, I got involved in a a conversation partners program at the University of Michigan where I was going to school. And um, it was one of those things where you just you meet with somebody once or twice a week and chat with them in English and they have to, you know, and I, that fascinated me. I had been studying languages myself for quite some time, um, Spanish and such, but, mm-hmm. and Latin actually, which is really useful anyway. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I didn't have anything to do after I graduated from college. So I started looking at grad schools and I, this area really interested in me interested mm-hmm. me. So I found a program at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Mm-hmm. It's a master's in teaching ESL. And it's a pretty well-regarded program, so I was thrilled when I got in and started. That's where I got started. Yeah. So. Is the, what's the job market like right now for ESL teachers? Depends on what you want to do. Um, but I, I would say that the most it's probably the most flexible teaching certification that you can possibly get in terms of you can teach in an intensive program at the college level you can teach for a private company you can teach overseas you can teach at the university level you can teach at the high school you know you can teach for public schools you can teach for private schools Mm -hmm. you can tutor there's all kinds of stuff 
that you can do. So it just depends on what you want to do. Yeah. Um, in terms of public education, I think it's becoming more competitive as more people become aware of the population and the need. Um, but it falls in with any other. I, I think in this particular area in the state that we're living in, um, there a lot of people are doing it as a fallback when they can't get a position in their primary interest area, which mm-hmm. I think is a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. But it's what people do. I mean, right. So, and then they fall in love with it, and they're a little late to the party. But you know. But you see that happen yeah, too. That once somebody's sucked in a little bit, oh then yeah. They're in. yeah, yeah. I've seen people say to me, "I don't know why I didn't think of this before," and it's like, why do you think that, that is though? Why do you think that it's so um, addictive? I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think um, for some people, it's something I've been wrestling with myself. You really see an immediate payoff when you're working with, depending on what level of student you're working with. Yeah. Um, the refugee students that I'm working with who have zero English and they're coming in, you know, when they first show up at school, you're like their mom. It's like you, yeah. you get them food, you get them a locker, you make sure they go to the bathroom, you do all this stuff. And not because they're not sophisticated people, but the language is so limited that they wouldn't have any idea how to even ask where the bathroom is. Mm-hmm. And so to, at the end of the year to be having, you know, this arguments about um, the structure of the U.S. government versus their home government, you know, within eight months' time is incredibly rewarding. And I think a lot of teachers are really looking, as much as we hate to talk about measurable results, because you get so sick of talking about data and accountability, yeah. it's very measurable and very obvious and right in front of you. This kid came in and couldn't speak a word, and now he's, you know, driving me nuts and chewing gum in my class at the end of the year. <laughs> like, it's very it's clear American progress. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, and, and I think sometimes in other areas, it's hard to see that very clear yeah. progress. Yeah. And here it is, right in front of your right. face. Huh. So. So... Compared to other kinds of teaching, what what challenges does an ESL teacher face that other teachers may not even be aware of? Um, I think um, as a teacher, as a person who loves, I'm a geek about teaching. Mm-hmm. So um, marginalization by other teachers was my biggest challenge, mm-hmm. was trying to get people to see the importance of teaching these kids. And to, like, I felt... Like, I've I felt like for several years I've been standing with my hands up trying to, like, you know, s- kind of protect these kids sort of a thing. It's, it's mm-hmm. an exhausting position to be in all mm-hmm. the time. And I think that's the biggest challenge for me as a colleague working with other people mm-hmm. is to try and get people to buy in and to really be on board and to collaborate. Can you can you think of, a, of an example of a time when... That maybe that stands out when you really felt like you had to do that? A couple of them. Um, um, one, it really comes from the students. And I had a kid who came in several years ago, and we were sitting in class. He and I were sitting in class, my classroom, talking, and we were just chatting about travel. And he had come up from um, Honduras. And I said to him, I was talking about how long the flight was. This is so first world. <laughs> I was talking about how long the flight was from Chicago to Vienna when I lived overseas for a year. No, it's seven hours. You know, I said, how long did you have to travel to get here? And he said to me, well, we only had to walk for three days. Oh. And, like, to this day, it still just stunned me how just, like, you know, matter of fact the kid was, this 12-year-old kid, yeah. you know, 
just kind of was like, well, it didn't take long at all. We just walked for three days, and then we got on a train, and we got on, you know, all this other stuff. And I, I just... That kid has always stood out to me as, like, I want to pick him up and say to teachers in the classroom, when I feel like these kids are being ignored because teachers aren't comfortable teaching them, teach this kid. He walked three days to get here. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm like, this one, you know, you're looking for kids who are motivated. He walked three days. Yeah. And if they just knew yeah. what you know. Yeah, most of our kids won't even walk to the bus stop. This kid walked through <laughs> you know. But, yeah. I, I mean, I can. I, I think trying to get teachers to see that value in including those kids in the classroom and including them in, in, in their own education. And, sh- and I think that teachers are very overwhelmed by just numbers in their class, and they often see an ELL kid as one more thing. Yeah. As opposed to a thing to be a person to be included and blended in, and yeah. and to who has something really incredibly powerful to contribute mm-hmm. to the class, and that having that information to try and communicate with teachers who are really overwhelmed and um, and teaching the same thing five times a day the same way five times mm-hmm. over is very exhausting. Yeah, to, to say this kid needs modification. Modification makes it sound like it's extra work when it really is supposed to be the work. Right. Do you know what I mean? Because a lot of kids would benefit yeah. from modification, not just yeah. the ESL kid. Yeah. But yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit just about the process. So when you you first get a brand new student, mm-hmm. no English at all. Um, what is your approach for for getting them started? Well, I have the luxury of being in a, a program that's designed for those kids. Okay. Um, and the way that program came about is I was about six years ago, I got a group of eight students in who all were zero-level speakers. Mm-hmm. And our um, at the time, our structure of our school day was that I had them two periods a day, and then they were spending five periods a day in content area classes mm-hmm. with their peers. And there was no... like teachers would put them in a row in the back of the room by Mm -hmm. themselves and ask them to copy everything off the board and then if they did that they had success in class for the day right you know if they interacted it didn't it wasn't it didn't matter like as long as they were docile and did what they were supposed to do and I was watching these kids they'd come to me first period in the morning and we'd work like I'm a boot camp sort of a teacher you hit the ground running (laughs) hardcore bell I mean I'm I actually teach I mean I don't mean to brag but I'm very proud of this (laughs) I'm teaching before the pledge even happens in the morning and I actually Uh get mad because I have to stop for the pledge (laughs) which we all stand up and do and then we sit back down and go on with what we're doing because I I just you're just making the most of every second is like you know yep and I would have them first period, and we would hit the ground running. And then by the time I got them back seventh period, they were the, the life had just been sucked out of them because they just spent five periods essentially staring at the walls and you know waiting to get engaged. So I was watching this happen, and we were getting this increasing refugee population with zero zero English and mm-hmm. very low academic skills. So I put in a proposal to the district to, to develop a program to support those kids. And so mm-hmm. we got this self-contained classroom, newcomers mm-hmm. program in our school that supports all the kids in the district. So I 
back to your question, yeah. I have the luxury of designing their entire education for them from the first day that they hit the ground running. So you get all the kids for the district now. Uh, yeah, for, we have for, a class. Okay. We have a class cap of fifteen, but any school, any student at any of the schools in the district gets bused. Who's a zero level speaker with limited education can get bused over to my school. Okay, and, and so they're with you, and they're with you all day, with the exception of one related class. They go out for music or art or okay. technology okay. or something like that. Do you also have the kids who are what is the term if they're emerging out of, but they're not ready for full integration into the regular classroom? What's that halfway point yeah, called? That, that sounds good. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I should know that because I just took a big test about that. But, was um, there like a level number? Yeah, that they're yeah, at, like or? level two, level three kids. Yeah, we, we go by levels. So my kids are level zero one. Okay. And then there's level two. We do uh, basic, advanced, basic, and then advanced CSL. Okay. Those kids go to a different. ESL teacher and ELL oh. teacher in the building. Okay, so you're most you're working with the self-contained newcomers. classroom. Okay, got it. And then the other ELL teacher in the building is responsible for their direct instruction plus collaboration. Okay, okay. So so, what do you start with with a brand new kid? Because I know they come in all throughout the year. They yeah. don't just start on the first day yeah. of school. So say you've already been working with a group of newcomers and you get somebody who shows up in early November. Yeah. What's the first thing you do with them? Um, school vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And that's so hard because, I mean, to fold a kid into a class that's established is, like, so tough. And, I mean, and that also is one of those points where you realize how far you've come with the kids that you have. Yeah. Because, like, the kids who you're working with, I, I start... Literally, on the first day of school, may I have and may I go, the kids learn those two phrases and then a ton of vocabulary. So you learn all the places in the school you might want to go to and then all of the things that you might need. And they spend the first week asking, may I have a pencil, may I have paper, may I have, you know, whatever they need. And we come up with many projects that they have to do, that they have to request stuff. And so by the end of that first week... Theoretically, they can find their their way around the school by asking for help, and then they can get what they need in order to succeed yeah. in school just directly. So I start with anybody who comes in with those two phrases. Mm-hmm. The pro- I'm not always successful at folding them in, but right. um, we use we use a vocabulary notebook, and the kids get the same vocabulary that other kids do. So I mm-hmm. keep that file running, mm-hmm. kind of like if a kid is on their first day. And I'm doing a science unit with the rest of the class um, that they can't fold into easily. I'll give them a vocab notebook and then get to work on that vocab notebook mm-hmm. independent of what the rest of the class is doing for mm-hmm. a little bit. And mm-hmm. we try and get them up to speed with that simple language first and then fold them as fast as we can into what the rest of the class is doing. But we differentiate all day long. Like it's different groups for math, different groups for reading, different groups for, I mean, you name it, and the kids are in small groups, even in a class of 15, we're yeah. in three-group rotation all day long. The kids are always in groups of three, four, five. Do you have any um, issues with developing, I'm imagining, especially if you're talking about a kid who is a refugee, that there may be major issues in terms of trust and, like, just them forming relationships with each other quickly in order to do that kind of grouping? Um, you know, I think because of the limited language, there's not a lot of confrontation that goes on. Yeah. I think the problem becomes in the more ad- when the kids come in with more advanced language, yeah. then they'll start saying mean things. You know what yeah. I mean? In middle school, when you come in and you have no language, that is like the great equalizer. Right. You know, it it sometimes will take 
two or three months for the kids in the class to realize who has been to school and who has not. Really? Yeah. Like, it's amazing. I have a kid who got to the end of the school year, and he is just starting to learn to read. I mean, he's 13 years old and had never read before. Just starting to learn to read. And I got a new student in in uh, January. And about March, the new student, I paired him up with a student who couldn't read. And I said, you need to read for him, you know, so he can hear you reading and follow with your finger. And he looked at me and said, he can't read. And I said, no, he can't read. He's like, oh, okay. You know, but it was like he, it just had never occurred. Yeah. It doesn't occur to them that there's differences all right. the time. I mean, I'm not saying there's not conflict, but they don't always look at someone and, and you know, immediately place them on a level and say, this kid can't read. Yeah. This kid's from, you yeah, know, so, such and such. Do they, how aware are they of where, especially with all those different countries, do, at, at that age, do they have a strong sense of nationality and of difference? And I mean, do you? I know that that years ago we had lots of kids come from Bosnia, but then a couple from Serbia also. And I always worried sometimes that yeah. there would be that those kids would actually be aware that they were supposed yeah. to hate each other. Yeah. And do you know? Do you ever see anything along those lines with these we do. kids? We have this huge Burmese population that we call Burmese population. They call themselves Karen and Kareni and Chin. And, oh, you know, yeah. there's like four or five, six different ethnic groups here, and they're very diverse and very different, and they strongly self-identify, but right. we label them as all Burmese. And that conflict was not something I was prepared for because I was not educated about what was going on yeah. over there. I had not done enough reading and didn't realize who I was getting. Um, and then we were getting kids from different refugee camps. So the kids who came in through Thailand were not as educated as the kids who came in through Singapore and Malaysia. So it just depended, you know, everybody's got these variations, but there's definitely, there were times this year when I saw a kid or two get into a conflict and the conflict was one thing, but it turned into a bigger, I don't want to say ethnic, but like, you know, we might be arguing over a pencil, but then in that argument There's over something a pencil, else going I, on. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to end up calling you something that I shouldn't call you yeah. based on your ethnicity sort of a thing. And I'm not sure, you know, my students would often make just really funny arguments with one another, but then there would be that ultimate put down at the end. Well, you're, you know, Karen, and I'm Granny, so I'm ultimately better. What always shocks me, though, and what I have come to respect is I allow the students to self-identify, whereas for some reason, when I first started, I was bound and determined to tell them, no, you're not Karen, you're Burmese. I don't know why, Mm. like, what was on the paperwork. I would be like, no, no, honey, we have you listed as Burmese. And the kid would be like, I'm not Burmese, I'm Karen. And I'm like, no, no, it says Burmese. (laughs) (laughs) And you felt a lot of resistance from them on that. Yeah, and I just had to get to the point. I mean, you know, or the kids would say, I'm from Thailand. Mm -hmm. And that was the bigger thing for me. So I was like, no, you're not really from Thailand. I'm not going to, why am I arguing with a kid over where they're from? (laughs) If they want to say, you know, I think part of it was because I taught a number of Thai students Uh who have the most fantastic names on the planet, you know, like Tani Naparampumpan, what a great name, (laughs) you know, and I I was always like, you're not Thai, you're you're not Thai, but when they say they're from Thailand, it's because that's where they grew up and they self-identify, and I I don't know why that was important to me to kind of... But you see a difference now that you accept whatever it is they choose to call themselves. Absolutely. I don't argue with a kid over where they're from. I don't argue over where they're 
you know, what I, I don't know why I ever did. But yeah. it, I don't think it was really an argument as much as it was just kind of a little tweak, like, yeah. you know, well, your people are not from there sort of a thing. You know? <laughs> well, and especially I think if a kid is from a refugee situation, I mean, what's on the paper could be the last place they were, right. but it might not actually right. mean anything. Right. Just, yeah. You learn a lot from just listening to their stories and figure, you know. So that that's something else I was wanting to know is, is you've probably picked up on a lot of just interesting cultural facts or, you know, do this and don't do that with these kids for that. So what have been some of those more things that really stuck with you that you've learned about the different cultures? Um, one thing for content area teachers and teachers who are not normally familiar with these kids that I, oh, I mean, and when I say these kids, 90% of the kids that I've dealt with have mm-hmm. had the same thing. You don't look your teacher in the eye. That's disrespectful. And it, like in Thailand at the refugee camps, my students would, <laughs> would tell me that if they were walking down a path and they saw their teacher, they had to lower their eyes. They couldn't look their teacher mm-hmm. in the eye. Mm-hmm. If they did, it was a sign of disrespect and they would get beat with a stick. Um, beaten with a stick yeah. like, teach you not yes. to do something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, so uh, when a teacher is talking to us, Americans, you know, how often do you say, look me in the eye when you're going to talk to yeah, me? You know, I need time. to make eye contact mm-hmm. with me. Look at me. You need to look at me. Look at me. And I do that as as part of their education, not because I want them, not because I see it as a sign of respect, but a sign right. of paying attention. Mm-hmm. But my students will walk past me in the morning coming in from the buses and not acknowledge that I'm standing right there. And it's not a teenage thing. It's a, this is how everybody in my family for years and generations has been raised, is that the teacher does not, you don't look the teacher in the eye, you don't say good morning to the teacher, you don't do any of that stuff. It's business sort of a thing. Hmm. And that... I mean, that's true for the African students as well. They mm-hmm. won't often say hello to you in the morning and that sort of thing, but mm-hmm. the Burmese students especially just... And then if they get in trouble, oh, for the love, like, there's no way they're making eye contact with you. So if they're in the process of getting reprimanded, which is hard for yeah. American kids yeah. sometimes to look you in the eye yeah. because it's an intimidating situation. Right. But it's like stare at the ground, like bury your head, shame spiral sort of a thing yeah. when you get into trouble so it's I mean and it there's not I have never had a student argue with me which I've seen a lot of American kids will at this middle school it's middle school yeah but they will argue back with their teacher that's I have never in seven years of the middle school had a student argue with me when I when they got into trouble and you see that pretty much across the board with yeah any kid who's not right from the U.S. that they that they've Right. Just been raised to not right. argue with unless, figures. Unless they've been in the country for long time. Yeah. yeah. Then they there's a, a, a switch. Yeah. Because I think teacher's authority figure changes. Um, because that's a whole other linguistic power struggle though for kids. Right. So we have a lot of Bosnian students at our school um, who have been in the country, born in the country, raised in the country, mm-hmm. whose parents don't speak English. Mm-hmm. And so those students are very familiar with how the school system works. Right. Their parents are not comfortable communicating with the school because they don't have the language to do mm-hmm. it. So the students take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. They also take advantage of the fact that the teachers are not willing to call home to their parents or a translator or won't take the time to do that. And so the students will misbehave and do things that they would never, ever, ever in their lifetime imagine doing at home in front of their parents. Yeah. But because they almost run with immunity in the school system, 
sometimes they'll pull stuff that you're yeah. like we we always send home papers to the for the parents to sign off on ELL services and the kids will bring them back signed and checked off no I don't want my child to have services and then we'll call the parent to confirm the parent says no that's not what I signed mm. but I couldn't read you know even if we have parents who can't read their first language either sort of a thing the kids take advantage right. of their parents lack of education yeah so there's a switch yeah. where there's a where kids start to kind of I mean, they're adolescents, and so they kind of see where they have a power opportunity, uh-huh. and they take it. Uh-huh. But the newcomers are not generally that way. Like, right. They're not savvy no, yet. No, thankfully. <laughs> so. And do you, do you interact with the families much with the newcomer group? I, it's interesting. When we first started the program, we were moving kids from other schools, mm-hmm. um, and so we had to go and get permission from the parents, and it was an all-day ordeal. We'd drive around to the houses and go and knock on the doors and talk to the parents through a translator, and the Burmese families were totally flabbergasted that we were there because if a teacher wants to move my son to a school 200 miles away, that's where he's going to go to school. You're the teacher. You know the stuff. You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so there was never any question about where, like, we kind of quit after the third house because it almost seemed like we were treading on, I don't know, uneven cultural ground by not respecting the fact that they would just... They're just going to agree yeah, that, no matter what. And, and that us being there was so foreign and shocking to them that they couldn't understand what was going on. Mm. And again, I, I always worry when I'm telling these stories that I'm making a sweeping generalization. Mm. But I think American parents might see that as being disengaged from your child's education, mm. whereas... Just to hand power over Right, completely. just to say, no, yeah. yeah. But Burmese parents look at it as, I have faith and trust in the school, and the teachers are the people who have the education, and if they're telling me this is what's right to do for my child, then I have faith and trust in that that's what's right mm-hmm. to do for my child. Mm-hmm. So um, I've had a lot of interaction with a lot of parents um, in a lot of different ways, and it just depends on the kid. And sometimes for discipline, um, I carry a, I have a phone translation line on my cell phone so I'll call, I'll show up at a kid's house and knock on the door and get the translator on the line through speakerphone and stand there and talk to mom and dad through a speaker Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. What's the, what's the name of it? Is this an app or is it a number that you It's call? a phone number. Our district subscribes to it. It's called In Every Language but there's equivalents all over the place okay. like other school systems if they don't have them should get them Okay. Um, instant access to a translator in I don't even know how many languages are on this one, but right. I've yet to have. A and language. this is a person who's it's, on the other. Yeah, line. you call, you talk to a translator, and the translator, or I'm sorry, you call and talk to an operator. The operator gets you a translator. I had a translator the other day um, in Swahili. Right. And we had an hour-long translation with this student. I was having a problem with one of my kids, and so I was trying to figure out the problem. And he was great. He was he was not translating. He was interpreting. Uh-huh. Um, so he was really because he got concerned about what was going on in the conversation. She was having behavioral problems at school, and she was making some claims about another student and stuff. So he was helping me out with that. It's called In Every Language. In Every Language. And it's just a subscription that the district yeah. pays for, so you don't pay by call. No. Okay. Honestly, the fact that it is available makes it, the students are aware that I can, like, <laughs> you know, whereas before I would often get this, you're not going to call my mom. And I'm yeah. like, actually, I already did, honey. <laughs> you know? Wait till you get home. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's a riot. 
So, well, since we're on that subject, then I also was wanting to know about technology and, and how else that's, you know, played a role in the teaching and, and helped you mm-hmm. do what you do. Our dis- well, first I worked for an unbelievable principal who was the kind of person who you would go to and say, look, I need this to teach, and he would get it for me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I went in one day, and I was like, I need a laptop. He's like, you got it. And he got me the best laptop I could get, you know, sort of a yeah. thing. He um, was amazing. At, he always said, I have no idea how to use it, but I trust that if you think you need it, I will get it for <laughs> you, sort of a thing. And I just I adored him for that. Um, but then my district had a competition for a grant, and I got a grant for my classroom um, mm-hmm. of iPods mm-hmm. um, on an iPod cart. So that completely transformed my newcomer teaching because mm-hmm. I could send the kids home with oral language input after the end of the school day. Because the problem is uh, refugee kids are living in refugee communities within the city that they're in. Mm-hmm. And so they'll go home, and at the end of the day, they're not hearing fluent or academic English right. if they hear any English at all. Mm-hmm. And I needed to extend their school day because they're so far behind. Right. So um, I would do dictations. I would have them go home and make movies in English. I would have them read to me in English into the iPod. Mm-hmm. I would send home books on CD for them. I would do particular grammar points, like you need to go and find an example of a comparison and take a video of it and tell me how it's a comparison. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the school, so after school, they would have some sort of homework that was speaking in English. And it was all done via the iPod. Yeah, they would. I had a contract for them, and they would sign the contract and take responsibility for the iPod and check it out at the end of the day and then come back the next yeah. day and return it to and me. Were th- the iPods all okay at I, the end of the year? Do you have I, any trouble with that? Yeah, I've had them that? for um, four years and never lost a single one. Wow. Yeah. So I, I really do a lot of, you know, cajoling and threatening. And yeah. um, I have a lot of leverage. You know, no gym time for you. No field trips for you if you lose my iPods. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much follow-through I'd have, but nobody ever tested me on yeah. it. So it was really yeah. nice, you know. And do you, where, where, what was the grant funded by? Or it was the district. Had, Just the district had the money. Yeah, the district had a bunch of money they pulled from a bunch of different departments, and they put a... It was really cool. They put together a competition. Teachers had to write oh. actual proposals, and and so we won. So it was, it was cool. Once they're done with you, or mm-hmm. through their other, and they're ready to go into a regular classroom, even if it's part time. Um, let's talk about what that regular classroom teacher needs to know, and what how they can best meet their needs. It's a big question. I, I think what the most difficult part about that is I'm not apologetic about asking and telling teachers that they need to change the way that they're teaching. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not apologetic about these kids sitting in your classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to be completely blunt, what we need to do probably is get rid of all the teachers who are doing teacher-fronted exercises and get teachers into the classroom who are willing to look at small group interactions and the value of that. Um, That's the first thing, is teachers need to change their teaching style. Mm -hmm. And and I think the reason being that for ELL students in particular, for all students, interacting with the material is the most important part. Mm -hmm. Kids aren't like empty glasses that we just pour stuff into and then at the end of the day you know they dump it back onto a test for us it's not how it works right and so if you really want the kids to learn they've got to be engaged and i'm you know preaching to the choir i think but just 
teachers need to see ways to break their classrooms down. You know, stop yeah. stop talking about the fact that you have 35 kids in a class and look that you have two other adults in there because oftentimes there's a collaborating ESL or mm-hmm. another aid, mm-hmm. and you can break them into groups of 10. Mm-hmm. And then you can teach in a rotation over the course of a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guarantee that the value for a student working in a group of 10 with a teacher for mm-hmm. 20 minutes mm-hmm. versus sitting in a group of 30 for 40 minutes is going to be... You know, tenfold. So if somebody's resistant to the, that idea, I think part of the resistance comes from not knowing how to do it. So I'm imagining if somebody asks me to break my class of 30 into three groups of 10, my first thought is if I'm not with those other two, or if somebody who doesn't know what I really want to do is with the other two, then I lose control and they just start fooling around. Mm-hmm. So what then is your recommendation to them to help that well, I think go better. there's two things that I would do. One, look at your personnel. If you have another adult in the classroom, it is absolutely ridiculous for you to ever have 30 kids in a group without being able to break that down. Mm-hmm. And use the other adult any way you want to. If it's an ESL teacher or ELL teacher, they will work with American kids as well. Don't mm-hmm. mix the groups up and rotate the groups through. Is that a misconception that that person is just there for your ESL kids and that they can't? Right. I okay. think... I think I think you have to define the relationship with your ELL teacher. So mm-hmm. um, the ELL teacher there is there to support the ELL kids, but they can also be used in multiple ways. You know, I think oftentimes I'll walk into a room and a teacher will say, well, what do you want to do with your kids today? Mm-hmm. And it's like, they're not my kids for these 45 minutes. They're mm-hmm. our kids for 45 mm-hmm. minutes, you know, sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, what What do you mean? It's, I don't know history. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, don't do that to me sort of a thing. So... I think first, look at your personnel. Right. Figure out how you can use the people that you have in the room. Two, if you don't have another adult in the room, then figure out ways to draw in student leadership and make the students accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say this coming from a position of experience because I once had a group of 25 boys in a class, boys, all mm-hmm. boys, high school, and I could not get them under control. Mm-hmm. So I actually decided one day to take and break them into four groups, and I took four of the boys out into the hallway, and I said to them, you are the leader of your group, Here's the assignment. I will take any questions from you, no one else in your group, so make Mm. sure that if anyone has questions, they ask you, and then you can talk to me, Mm. and I'm going to hold you accountable for this assignment at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And then as the boys took it very seriously because they knew they were going to be accountable and they made sure everybody in their group was working, and I only had to deal with four students instead of Mm -hmm. 25. I mean, it it worked really well. it doesn't work really well all the time. You have to have buy-in from all the kids. Mm-hmm. And I think in severe behavioral problems, there's that. But any right. way that you can break that classroom down into smaller sizes mm-hmm. so that you're facilitating what's happening as opposed right. to, you know, absolutely running what's happening, then yeah. you'll have more success. If you could, if you could uh, just... Um if you only had a limited amount of time and you could just send home one or two messages, apart from what you've just said about yeah. needing to, to break it up and not have it just be so one-directional from right. the teacher. Differentiate your language. I mean, figure out what the essential vocabulary is that the kids need to know and figure mm-hmm. out who can know it and who doesn't know it sort mm-hmm. of a thing. Um, I've seen history classes that are teaching stuff like bourgeois and market economy and all of this other stuff but not taught in any sort of context. And so that language is so elevated for kids yeah. and abstract that they never 
get it. Right. On top of that, they're working in an environment where they're not using the language. So if you're not using right. it, you're never going to acquire it. So choose the vocabulary carefully that mm -hmm. you're going, the content vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Then also focus on academic vocabulary for all the kids. Like, I, I think if you are teaching in a history class, I was watching a teacher at another school do this, and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It was an AP uh, AP history class and he had a cartoon a political cartoon up on the wall and the class was half ESL and half American and he asked the kids to give um, a hypothesis about what they thought or uh, a theory or an idea about what they thought that the, the cartoonists intended when they were writing when mm -hmm. they were creating this cartoon and one of the American kids raised their hand and said ah, da, 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 and the teacher stopped the class and he said no I need you to use this phrase mm. I believe that the cartoonist intended mm. and so he set up this academic language where yeah. the kids like kids could just fill in that end of the sentence he gets to practice it he knows that's the level of academic language mm -hmm. that's expected in the class and this was an American kid right well then the ELL kids in the room see another kid doing that and yeah. they'll follow suit yeah and so to set that expectation up for all kids that this is the kind of language we use when we're having an academic yeah. conversation is the most supportive thing I think you can do across content areas for all kids for all well because I'm thinking that in so many schools you have got native English speakers who do not know how to use academic language or eat you know if, if the kids are not in a household where people are speaking in high academic language all the time, then they don't know how to use it, they don't know how to write right. it, and they need to have it put into phrases and shown how yeah. to actually do that. So I think that would help. They also won't do it if it's not the norm in the class because they'll be embarrassed to use it with their, with mm -hmm. among their peers. Mm -hmm. But if they can put it off on the teacher and say, oh, well, you know, Miss Kim makes me talk like this, yeah. then it doesn't look, they don't look as right. like hoity-toity as they yeah. would. So if just pretending yeah. to be academics yeah. for so, 15 minutes or so. Yeah. I mean, it would be my dream to see posted on every classroom wall um, lists of phrases that you can use if you want to respectfully disagree with someone, mm -hmm. if you want to mm -hmm. ask a question of the teacher, if you want to ask for help. Like, right. this, it's much better to say... You know, I understood what you said about A, but I need you to clarify B. Mm -hmm. Than to say, mm -hmm. I don't get it. Right. You know, and so, and what kid couldn't use that prompt? Yeah. You know, and then if they're up there on the wall and I'm teaching and a kid says to me, I don't get it, and I point at the poster and mm -hmm. say, can you please repeat that mm -hmm. using one of these? Then I'll happily answer your question. Right. Then we've got a more academic environment for yeah. the kids. And I think that'll support all kids. Right. It and, would. And it's an easy fix. Yeah for content area teachers who need to teach language but don't know how to is to insert this academic uh -huh. language into their classroom and then the content can come. Content area teachers now are required by Common Core to be God bless the Common supporting Core. the literacy of their <laughs> students yeah. and that is a really great mm -hmm. thing that they could all be doing is putting mm -hmm. little chunks of language up on the uh, phrases that can be used. Apart from academic um, choices that a teacher might take. What about uh, maybe some nonverbals or some just interpersonal things that maybe you think uh, if you if you could shake something into a content area teacher to have them do or not do, um, does anything come to mind? 
don't um yeah because the first one that pops out is don't choose any child and make them speak for their entire culture and think mm-hmm. that you're then including them in the class did something specific come to mind when you, yeah i yeah, had a i had a iraqi student who um, oh boy uh, yeah and a teacher <laughs> asked them how they felt about something and you know and it like horrified me because i thought this kid doesn't i mean he's 12 or 13 years old right and he has his own thoughts and feelings and stuff, but oftentimes they're parroting what their parents have told them. And yeah. then what they say is going to be filtered out to the other 29 or 30 kids who are hearing this kid speak right. for the first time. Right. Their English is limited, so they can't express themselves very well and explain what they want to say. And they don't want to represent. They just want to be there, you know. Yeah. And that's not cultural inclusiveness, is to, is to just ask a kid to you know explain how your people feel about it sort of yeah thing. and right. I've seen that a yeah. number of times and it always just you've seen me. teachers do it yes yeah. and it, it's painful because I think then I've seen teachers do it and then pat themselves on the back that yay I'm you know because they think yes, that they're, in, yeah, yes, they're I, appreciating I, the diversity yes, and, yeah. so great, sort of thing. <laughs> but, I mean it took me forever to convince my teachers it was so funny because I would listen to them talking about the Mexicans, and, and I was like, we don't have any Mexicans, you know, sort of a thing, like lumping everybody to eat. I think as teachers, just become more educated about who's in your room. Yeah. If somebody doesn't know how to do that, though, if they think that that kind of a question is appropriate, what should they do to show interest in a kid's culture without doing that Mm -hmm. what kinds of questions could they ask or how can they get to know them well I I think first it depends on the kids language level Mm -hmm. so you have to be aware of where they're at linguistically before Mm -hmm. you can ask them to speak in front of the class Mm -hmm. and that that's the first caveat Um, Mm -hmm. do they have the language to even respond to your question or to to fully understand your question right and if they do, or is the rest of the class going to be accepting of that response, or is it going to further their mm-hmm. embarrassment? You know, mm-hmm. that's an important moment. Yeah. And then, you know, if a teacher wants to know about a kid, talk to the child independently. Don't look for an. Uh, you know, I, I've seen it. Be, the problem is that it's often spur of the moment in class, sort of a thing. Yeah. And kids, especially at low language levels need preparation time to respond to such a question. And so if you put them on the spot in the classroom and they don't know it's coming, and then they have to generate this language plus this upper-end response, the level of anxiety is unbelievable. So for a content area teacher, I would say if you anticipate a theme or something in your class that's going to be really relevant to one of your students, Mm -hmm. perhaps have a conversation with them in advance. Mm -hmm. Check with your ELL teacher and see if they think that it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly ELL teachers usually have their thumb on the, you know, cultural pulse a little bit more just because they're they're spending a lot of time with it and see if it's appropriate. Right. Um, And then give the student as much lead time as possible if it's really important that they contribute in yeah. the class. Yeah. You know, don't put them on the spot and make it a passing thing. Yeah. Let, them, let them think it through, have a response ready for you. And, yeah. You know. How, especially at this age group, when all kids want desperately to fit in mm-hmm. and not be different and not be noticed, where would you say the balance is with, if you could generalize about most of your students, um, do, do they uh, want to just sort of slough off any cultural identity and just be American, or is there more of a, of a pride of identity and wanting people to know about their culture? Because I think 
as adults, a lot of times we think, well, you just, you ask them in front of the kids, stand in front of the class yeah. and tell, tell us about the food you eat in your yeah. country. And I know any kid would be mortified right. to be different. Right. But is there is there also this um, desire to have people know about their culture? I, I think there is. But again, it just, it's so hard. I don't want to generalize. Like yeah. I think, you know, and I always think about the kids who their only knowledge of their cultural culture is from their home like we have a lot of bosnian kids who've never been to bosnia but they strongly self going back to our self-identification thing self-identify as bosnian students and with that culture but that culture is a little bit different from what if you were in bosnia they don't necessarily know what's my culture and And so oftentimes kids will cling to things that they think i mean i did the same thing growing up like that I grew up in a Dutch family. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been to the Netherlands, but I was raised in Holland, Michigan. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And so I just thought that everybody ate almond paste all the time and boiled their food until it was brown. Like, that's what we do. That's, you know, that's my, that's my conception of what yeah. Dutch, you know, wooden shoes and all that stuff, Dutch right. culture is like. I I realize that were I to go to the Netherlands, it would be a completely different experience. Right, and I would be the American yeah, there, and yeah. yeah, and I wouldn't pretend to speak for Dutch culture, but I understand Dutch American culture. Yeah, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and so I think where students are struggling is they're doing this blend of like often when teachers are asking them to talk about their culture, mm-hmm. they're wanting to know about this sort of rustic, you know, encyclopedia mm-hmm. type yes. information. Whereas a, a culture is such a complex con- concept yeah. that it's like it ends up leading kids to make generalizations. Right. That then the teacher takes that generalization and then they turn it into whatever their perception is mm-hmm. of the culture. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, there's a danger in that. Um, the students, uh, depending on their stage of culture shock and how long they've been in country and all that sort of stuff, may or may not associate with their home culture at all. They may, right. you know, everybody right. gets to a point where they actually reject their home culture yeah. when they're going through the stages of culture shock, and then they go back to rejecting their host culture. Like, it's just a, yeah. it's a methodical process, culture shock, and so um, for some people it takes longer than others, and some people never adapt. Yeah. So. How do you, how do you manage that? Especially if they're all, it's all happening at different times. How do you manage that as a teacher? Is there sort of a, a stock response that you give to everybody about, um, I don't know, like if somebody's feeling particularly anti-American one day because of something, is there a way yeah. to handle that? Or if, um, if somebody sort of wants to just disregard their own culture for a while? And, yeah, I, don't know. I think it just goes back to respecting the kids wherever they are in mm-hmm. that moment and not you know, saying, well, you know, you've been here three months, this is what our expectation is of yeah. you, sort of a thing. And so I can't say that I have a yeah stock response, but every kid, I have a kid who arrived in December, was here through May, and I would venture learned next to nothing in my class because she was mm. in such a state of culture shock mm. that uh, she was not remotely interested in this whole education thing. And, yeah. you know, it was incredibly frustrating, but you, when you recognize that, you're like, okay, I just got to wait this out. Yeah. You know, sort yeah. of a thing. I mean, I confronted her and had conversation with her and talked with her as many times as I could, but until she decides that that's not where she's mm-hmm. at, then, you know. So I think as a teacher, just being aware that there are things beyond the mm-hmm. child's control mm-hmm. that may be impacting their education. Yeah. Um, and being patient with that, which yeah. is not always easy. I'm not... 
Sounds like you also right validate whatever their current yeah. state of mind is too, yeah. not necessarily tell them that yeah. their feelings are wrong. Right, right. I'm not exactly a rock star at that at times, though, because, like I said, I'm like the boot camp teacher. You got so stuff done. Too. Yeah, so it's like, welcome to my class. You're five months behind everybody else. I don't have time for this culture shock stuff. Like, you know, let's go. Okay, so since you have been an ESL teacher along the way, what have been some of the best uh, – suggestions or tips or strategies that you have learned along the way, maybe from other ESL teachers or professional development or whatever that has made you better? The academic language deal. Yeah. Big deal. Yeah. Um, Do as much oral language stuff as possible with students, um, including structured academic conversations Uh in the classroom Uh so that they practice them outside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. In your interaction, in my interactions with kids, it's structured academic conversation. Mm -hmm. I agree. I disagree that language right. so the kids learn that and you can't get a pencil out of me by walking up to me going pencil mm. so the third thing I guess I would say is that require students who are in the process of learning a language to speak to you and give them the language to support them in speaking to you in complete sentences mm-hmm. if they don't have it it's not a disciplinary thing mm-hmm. but they may just need the support so right offer that to them and say, you need a pencil, can you say to me, may I have a pencil? Those low-level kids need that kind of expectation put upon them, and then they need the oral practice and the repetition. Instead of, oftentimes, we're in such a busy state of mind that we just want to get stuff done, that a kid walks up to my desk and I anticipate before they even get there, they're going to ask me for a pencil and I hand it to them, and I miss an entire opportunity for them to learn. Which would take more time, but yeah. then it would, it would yeah. have longer legs on it right. for later on. Right. I know that a real common thing that we do when we have, uh, and this is maybe for schools where, we, where you may not have a really well-structured ESL program, um, you have a, a child show up, say they're you know, Spanish language speaking, and the first reaction is to sit them next to another Spanish speaking child who also speaks English and have them just be buddies until further Graduation. notice, basically, yeah. yeah. Is that something that is ultimately a good thing, or are you creating a dependency? Well, first, I I never think it's good to make a student responsible for another student's education. Mm -hmm. It makes me nuts. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, the student who they're paired with is also an ELL student, just more advanced, more proficient. Yep. And so if that student is responsible, they're also in the process of learning, and now they've become a translator slash interpreter for the other kids. It's a distraction. Yes. And so they can't focus on what they need to get done. The other thing is that I'm big on, you know, I think it's good to have someone that you can rely on in your first language now and again. Yeah. But you learn language by using it and by trying it and focusing it. And even though it's mentally exhausting and taxing and that sort of thing, we need to allow kids to struggle with the language. Mm -hmm. But that that requires that the teachers are willing to interact with the kids on an, you know, L plus one sort of a level, like the level just beyond their comprehensible input has to be there. And, and so we as teachers need to say, I value your language learning enough mm. that I'm going to interact with you on a level that you're going to be able to understand without making this student responsible for your education because I'm responsible mm-hmm. for your education. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we do that enough. I think it's easiest to they'll throw a kid in with a schedule and what happens is the low-level student stays low yeah. and the upper-level student doesn't move up much because they're now responsible for somebody else who's right. lower, to them, right. lower than them. Now, I'm not saying never put them into groups yeah. together and never have them work together and never have 
one student help you. Mm -hmm. I certainly have had a student, you know, where I needed in that moment, what bus number does he ride? You know, sort of thing. Right, right, right. I don't, you know, but in my classroom, for example, it's English all day long. Yeah. Because if I don't require it of them, then they're not going to require it of themselves at the middle school level. So... Well, that that actually was one of my other questions. Is that what what do you know about ELL kids that you wish other people understood about them? I, I think the common misconception is that it, the thing that always scares me when I'm interacting with a teacher in the hallway is that they will see a student do something and they will think that it's cute. Because there's this sort of, you know, they tr- they can't speak English, so it's adorable when they misbehave or when they're chewing gum and I've told them not to chew gum a hundred times or when they've, you know, sort of a thing. And, and, like, everything about ELL kids becomes anecdotal. And I think a student who's desperate to communicate and is trying to say what they have to say, often the teachers will get distracted by the delivery and miss the message. Mm. And that's painful for me to watch. And so, like, I have seen kids who are trying so hard to communicate with a teacher, and the teacher is so wrapped up in the fact that their English isn't very strong that the teacher loses the fact that this kid is trying to tell them something important. Yeah. So I, I think that what I know about ELL kids is that you have to recognize their cognitive demand in working in a second language is incredibly intense and they'll all respond to that cognitive demand in different ways some of them will shut down some of them will thrive under it but don't mistake the lack of language for a lack of intelligence or Mm. a lack of maturity and I think that happens Mm. a lot and and then add to that layer I think there's almost an inherent expectation of disrespect at the middle school level by teenagers Mm -hmm. and so when you get this polite kid it's like you know it makes them even more cute and you know and in my class people come in and my kids are just working their tails off and people are like oh it's so cute how they're I was like this is not cute this is boot camp you know (laughs) like I'm I'm so intense about it I'm like this is not this is hardcore we're learning in here you know I mean I, I think that that's what I want teachers to know is that they're doing twice the job of everybody else yeah. in the class, even if the result looks like half as much. Yeah. I mean, and I contribute to that. I, mean, I, I But, like, I contribute it unintentionally because I, I come from a place of respect when I'm talking as a second language learner. I have, I mean, yeah. I find language to be hilarious. Yeah. And, you know, I... I I cannot pronounce a lot of words in a lot of languages. And mm-hmm. so to, you know, sit with a Japanese student and have that Japanese student say a word to me and me say it back to them like 40 times. And <laughs> all 40 times, I think I'm nailing it. And the Japanese kid's like, no, no, still don't have it. You know, like I've been there. I get, you yeah. Know? And so I have that level of respect. Yeah. So when I, I have to be careful, though, when I'm sharing those stories right. with people who look at the language not from that same perspective. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm not laughing at the kid. I'm laughing at the language, you know. Yeah. When kids mix up sheet and shit, it's hilarious yeah. every time. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. I had a, Are the kids able to laugh at themselves, or do they get more self-conscious and defensive about it? They are when you yeah. when you kind of. But I mean, it's that metacognition. Like they'll yeah. mispronounce. I the kids start making fun of each other's pronunciation and yeah. stuff. You know, I had a kid in 
at the school I used to teach at who we'd, we were reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And he um, came to class the next day, and he was just so frustrated. He said, there is no alcohol in this whole book. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? He's like, Tequila Mockingbird. <laughs> He said, all week you've been talking about Tequila Mockingbird. And he got the joke yeah. you know, himself. But it, I mean, it was so fantastic. It was like... Oh. You but, what, yeah. and it's what you, but you, you can only enjoy right. that humor right. if you feel like you are only surrounded by people yeah. who have a genuine love and respect yeah. I, yeah. for the people they're laughing yeah. at. Like, I feel like yeah. I have license. You know what I right. mean? I, this story is totally worth telling. <laughs> I had a kid, this is a middle school kid, he was in class, and he got in trouble and got sent up to the office mm-hmm. for calling a girl a whore. Uh-huh. And so I got called up to the office to talk to this kid. He'd been in trouble before, and I said, what on earth is going on? And he said, well, I was sitting in class, and she said that I laughed like a dog. And I said, okay. And he said, so I told her she laughed like a whore. And I said, honey, do you know what a whore is? Uh-huh. And he said, he had no idea. And so I explained to him what a whore was in the most delicate term. He was horrified. Oh. And then he looked at me and he goes, I don't know the singular form of horse. <laughs> and, like, he was totally serious. Like, he thought he was He's speaking. Kind of taking the yeah, S off of horse. Taking the S off of horse, and that was oh. one whore. And so he was saying that, because it makes more sense, actually, in the yeah. context. Yeah. He laughed like a dog. She laughed like a of horse. Yeah. <laughs> but... but you know, and so I went, like, the teacher who got him and got written him up for this, mm. I told her what happened, and she didn't believe me. And I said, listen, either he's telling the truth, or he is the smartest linguist we have in the school, because no kid could come up with that on their own, of a singular horse is whore. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I was like, so either way, you should not be in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you've seen the questions already, and so you can answer this in any way you want to. Three best, it could be three or less, three best and three worst moments, you know, in your history of ESL teaching. It could be just one or... Um, my big aha moment and one of the hardest things is that I work with a Bosnian woman as my instructional aide, mm-hmm. and she's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And I'm an academic in a lot of ways, and so we were um, teaching some upper-level kids, and I wanted to do something along the lines of the Diary of Anne Frank sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. Right, so brilliant me. I find in the text of one of our books this um, diary written by a girl. um, Zlata. Zlata. Yeah, I'm an idiot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because I thought to myself, this is great. We'll teach it. The kids will connect with it. It's modern. I have a woman sitting in my room who has lived through this. Right. And has never dealt with it and doesn't want to deal with it in an academic sense. And I'm thinking of it from a teaching perspective of this is fantastic. It's updated. You know, the kids will connect. And I'm not... It like absolute cultural insensitivity, personal insensitivity. I mean, it, it was a rough, rough day. When we had a conversation, like I brought it up kind of flippantly, like, hey, I found this in a book. Like, what do you think about So you never got this? to the point where you actually taught with oh, it. Oh, no. You just we, presented it to her. I presented it, yeah, because we were teaching She partners. probably already knew about it, though. She knew she about knew, it, yeah, yeah. She was very familiar with it. But she had, like, to hear someone, I think, 
from her perspective to hear me kind of look at it from an, look at a genocide and from an academic it's, it's perspective. Curriculum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, hey, we'll stick this in and teach it Monday through Friday next week sort of a thing. Yeah. It was like so unbelievable. I mean, she reacted not remotely. I mean, she just was kind of very quiet. I thought she'd be excited about it, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, I, like, I was such an idiot about it. But I, it was one of those moments as a teacher where I, I realized that the stuff, some of the stuff that we deal with and that we teach is still very real, even though it looks like history to a lot of people. Yeah. And that you have to approach those things with sensitivity. Yeah. And even when, you know, we ended up not teaching it at all because she she said, you can teach it, but I, I won't be able to be here while you're teaching yeah. it. And I thought, I have no license to teach this right. if a person who experienced it doesn't want, doesn't you want know. to even be present yeah. for it. And that that was one of my hardest moments, I think, as a yeah. a teacher in the school where, I was work, where I'm working is just this realization that we have someone that I... It was one of my closest friends yeah. now that I just put that onto in in an academic way. Like, I just, th- you know, like, we can just as easily teach, you know, right. Melville next week. You know, it's like, whatever. And it was just a topic for me and for her. Yeah. It was so, so much, so personal. So how, and this, because you've got kids who are, probably almost all coming to you, except for the corporate kids, almost all coming to you from really bad situations. Does PTSD ever come up as something that you either have already had some training on and, and, and does it interfere with the... No. Well, I'm, I'm sure that yeah. I have kids who are... I mean, we have had kids with pretty severe emotional stuff. Yeah. Um, like, who become intense problem kids in the school like they just never can get it under control yeah I think for my kids I have not had to deal if it is there manifest itself in different ways like Mm -hmm. maybe not participating in class sort of a thing yeah but I honestly think that a lot of my kids manage really well because I am a teacher of routine and so I, it's very predictable. You walk into yeah. my room first thing in the morning, there's going to be a question of the day on the board. You get out your green notebook, you sit down, you start writing. You know, yeah. we're underway. We have this class and this class. I don't change the routine all year long. Yeah. And I, I do that partially because I think that structure supports those kind of kids. Like predictability, it's predictability is comforting to yeah. them and they can get into it. We go to the bathroom yeah. at 8.56 yeah. every single day. Like, <laughs> every day. <laughs> Talk about the green so. notebooks. What's what's the green notebook? Um, the kids have I most of my kids don't come in with academic um, backgrounds, mm-hmm. so they don't understand the importance of having a math notebook versus a reading notebook versus a grammar notebook mm-hmm. versus. A, so I do um, color coded notebooks because at the beginning of the year it's a lot easier instead of saying you need your grammar notebook, Mm. I'll say, everybody get out your green notebook. Mm -hmm. And then we transition that into having a different name over the course of the year. Black notebooks are a math notebook. And so if I can stand there in front of the class and hold up the colored notebook I want them to get out, then that makes class go a lot faster. Mm -hmm. And so the kids all know exactly, I mean, I have a set sitting on my desk, and I'll hold up which one we're going to work from, and then we can roll right into the activity. Because I was finding 
the first week I would distribute, you know, four, four notebooks a kid, and then I'd be like, get out your notebook one, and everybody would have a different notebook, and some kids <laughs> are writing in the back, and, you know, they don't know what to do. So yeah. that skill for these kids was just as important as part of the rest of the routine, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. Every morning, all year long, we write in the green notebook. And for some kids, you get to April, and they're still not getting it because yeah. they just, it's so... Like, every day you come in and you have to do the same thing, and that's hard for them to... They still academically haven't absorbed the fact that this is part of my academic mm-hmm. routine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So they start with a question of the day. Mm-hmm. So they start each day with a question of the day. And th- is, that, is that, like, their writing time? Is it a... Is it, a it just depends on what we're doing. I usually relate it to whatever we did the day before. So mm-hmm. it's something where they have to reference back to their vocabulary mm-hmm. or their notes or something. They can usually find the answer someplace else. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a while to get to the upper, higher order thinking questions. Yeah. So why doesn't happen until the end of the year? Yeah. You know, but like I might just do a couple of fill in the blanks where they have to find the right answer. Yeah put them in but it's just something to get them geared towards what we're about to do too Mm -hmm. so then I'll usually structure it so that there's a question or two about what we've done the day before and then a question Mm -hmm. that's oriented towards where we're headed Mm -hmm. for the day so these they keep this notebook all year and it becomes a reference tool that's a different notebook that's a different one which one is that one they have a vocabulary notebook it's funny because one year it was notebook two so i call it notebook two yeah (laughs) yeah they have a vocabulary notebook and that one is a picture dictionary that's self-created and so Mm -hmm. um they we with the first day of school we have a bunch of pictures of school words Mm -hmm. and then we'll like when we get into animal adaptations we Mm -hmm. have pictures of all different kinds of animals and then animal body parts and then within that I'll stick in sentence um, in addition to the vocabulary word the appropriate sentence frame that goes with it Mm -hmm. so if I have bathroom the kid writes bathroom down and then they write may I go to the bathroom Got it. So it's there's a word and then yeah. how to use it. And then for the non-literate kids, they do that, writing, but then they also get an oral version of it on the iPod so that they can go home and study and they're not left out. You know, because right. you go home and you can't read, you can't study this vocabulary word as bathroom. Right. Because you don't know what it is. So right. That's where the iPods come in and support their learning as well. The, and so this is, a, there's a, is this pictures that you give them to glue mm-hmm. in? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it just depends on the, I mean, I'll do it, we do it for everything from the school vocabulary to like forces in motion. The kids have pictures of, yeah. you know, gravity and action and reaction and yeah. um, Newton, Isaac Newton and all that stuff. I mean, we do upper end content area vocabulary just like everybody right. else, but we come up with a p- pictorial representation yeah. of it. And is it just chronological from when you did it or is mm-hmm. you've got like chunks of the alphabet or anything like that? No, do? I have them do it by subject. So okay. when we're studying this, this is all together and then the next. And then what I have started to do is they turn the notebook over and in the back is grammar structures. So, like, we start my class with I am, you are, he is, she yep. is, it is. That's written in the back of their book. Mm-hmm. Then when we, anytime we add a grammar structure in, past tense, future tense, irregular verbs, all of that stuff right. is in the back. So that when they leave my class, they have a reference, an English language reference book mm-hmm. that they have used all year long, so they're really familiar with yeah. it. Because I think handing a kid a book by a publishing company, mm-hmm. they won't reference it. But my kid's... If you walk yeah. in the door, you'll see them thumbing through notebooks and stuff. So that vocabulary notebook, yeah. they, they pull that one out yeah. all day long. Cause that's yeah, kind of, kind they of know where their stuff is. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. 
How can a principal or administrator support you and your students best? By holding all of the teachers accountable for teaching all the ELL students. Okay, and how, how exactly would they do that? Well, it, it goes on multiple levels. First, yeah. provide training for your staff okay. and express to all of them that they're expected to teach these kids. And mm -hmm. if they don't know how to teach these kids, they better be asking for help on how to teach the kids. Mm -hmm. Second, in the lesson planning, require that it's written in. If you're going to modify or collaborate or you have another adult in the room during third period, write it into your plan how you're going to use that person, mm -hmm. how you're going to modify your lessons, how you're going to modify your tests. Mm -hmm. Make it be part of your planning. Yeah. Hold people accountable for that. So when you go to observe, don't let them pick the class that they want you to observe. Pick the class that's, that's got the ELL kids mm -hmm. in it that you have an expectation. You know, pop in and make sure that people are doing what they wanted, what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. That, from my perspective, I went through this phase where I just wanted to be everywhere because I thought I I can't teach every class in the yeah. building, and it drove me nuts knowing that my kids were going, my kids, yeah, were going to these classes and not being engaged, and no one was ever. Doing, you know, yeah. and it, they were just being disregarded. So, but that starts at the top with right. that being modeled and expected all the way down. Right. And then when the teachers ask for collaboration time, or when the teachers have somebody, you know, if you have the ability to collaborate, give them time to plan, figure out a way, get a sub for a day so that they can, yeah, you know, meet for a two week period or whatever. Get a sub for a couple periods. Get a rotating sub for the building so that yeah. the ELL teacher can meet with different teachers. So that it's not just one more thing they right. have to do. Yeah. Find ways to fold it into the schedule and be creative yeah. instead of thinking this is the way that, you know, this is just how we have to do it. But is there also sort of a disposition or an attitude that you'd like to see from administrators and teachers that would help all of that happen better? Well, I, I think that a sense of urgency is lacking from what I've mm -hmm. observed. Like, mm -hmm. I just, I, I have a friend who, who well, it technically ended up being my boss, and he and I were talking one day, and he said to me, you know, sometimes I get up in the morning, and I, my hand is shaking as I'm putting on my tie because I have such an incredible sense of desperation about getting these kids educated. Mm -hmm. And I feel like from the time I get up in the morning, like, how can I do this? I have to, you know, that sort of anxiety over. Mm -hmm. And I, he's the only person who's ever expressed that to me. And that's sad, but I want people to like feel like, like I said, teach this kid. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah. Like, like I, it's heartbreaking to me at times. Just look out of my room and see these kids just working their tails off, and know that they are seven or eight or nine years behind their peers, and yeah. they don't know it. And then the next year after they get out of my classroom, it is such a big, huge water in the face sort of a wake up moment for them yeah. I try to prepare them as best I can but without the support of the content area teachers that water gets I mean it's ice cold yeah. when it slaps them in the face that they don't have a teacher who's dialing into everything that they're doing you know all yeah day long. and so for and for the content areas what you're mostly seeing is as long as this child is not causing trouble and and yeah. they're turning in enough work to pass, yeah. or all, do you see them more just passing them because yeah. it, that's kids easier? Get all the time, and they're really, content. yeah. I mean, it's like, well, how did he get a hundred? Like, I don't get that. 
But I, I, I mean, I will say this. I think the middle school level and even down the elementary school level, like, grades aren't as important, right? Because it's not like high school credits you need in order to yeah. get a degree. And so it's not that big of a deal until unless the kids figure out. Yeah. You know, the question is, are the kids extrinsically motivated or intrinsically motivated? Mm-hmm. And a grade doesn't always motivate kids. My mm-hmm. kids really couldn't care less what their grade is in their other classes. I mean, it doesn't really phase them. But in my math class, oh, my gosh. Like, <laughs> you know, they are comparing papers and doing all this yeah. other stuff. So it just depends on the Well, there's the a chance in them. your class that yeah. they're actually going to get it and that well and I think that there's a a marker there for them like they earn it you know there's not learned helplessness which I think that happens in a lot of classes yeah the kids are like "Eh, I can't do any of this so yeah you know what what are some of the apart from completely changing the way that a person teaches Mm -hmm. because that sometimes would just require replacing them with a whole different teacher but when you talk about the modifications what are some of the most common modifications that if the teachers would just do that even if they kept their traditional, you know, teacher delivery system, right. that would help some. Oops, excuse me. It's okay. In unit planning, start out with, if you've boiled it down to, in your unit planning, have a language learning component to it that's content-based. So if you have 10 vocabulary words, you know, base mm-hmm. it on the kid's level, first of all. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing for me is that a lot of people are like, well, he's an ELL kid. Right, but he was born in the United States. He's lived here his whole life. His, yeah. Your expectations for him should be different from Joe Schmo who just showed up last week. Yeah. You know? His name wouldn't be yeah. Joe Schmo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But I think that's a common problem is a lot of teachers just lump all these kids together right. and don't recognize the range of abilities. And so I, I have to yeah. be cautious when I'm giving advice. You yeah. Know? Um, so... You can't modify the test if you haven't modified your instruction. Mm-hmm. So you've got to start with your instruction on your unit plan and figure out where you can insert pieces that that student can participate in, where you can insert places where they can be held accountable, mm-hmm. um, how you can figure out that that kid is actually absorbing the information differently from his peers, mm-hmm. uh, modify your expectations for your content, mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, what does that mean exactly, though? Modify your expectations for your content for that student, meaning they shouldn't, they won't need to learn as much as everybody else. They're learning just as much as everybody else, but they're not going to be able to explain it to you or okay. express it to you at the depth, or even they won't be able to learn it at the depth that the other students will if okay. their language level is low. So figure out where the minimum is and where, right, you know, the like my are. kids, for example, we do a unit on forces and motion. It's the three laws of motion. Mm-hmm. Every single kid in my class could tell you all of the three laws of motion mm-hmm. at the end of the unit. I Some of them got to the point that they could recognize and explain a picture. I have a fantastic yeah. picture of a motorcycle hitting a wall. And the student said, this, this shows um, for every motorcycle there is an equal and opposite wall. It was a great, <laughs> you know, yeah. sort of a... But a pigeon of the rule that, like, that's more advanced. Yeah. Versus my lowest level kids, my expectation was just that they would memorize the three laws of motion. Yeah. And so then at the end of the unit. And so you can figure out a way to get everybody on the same page, mm-hmm. working on the same content, but at their level. Mm-hmm. That's where the ELL collab comes in handy. Yeah. We're talking with someone to figure it out. But at the beginning in your unit planning, start looking at that. What is realistic here for this kid? At the end of a week, 
I want this kid to be able to recite the three laws of motion. I want this kid to be able to recite the three laws of motion and choose a law and apply it to one of the pictures. Because I think he can. Yeah, because yeah. because he has the language. Yeah. I'm going to, for this kid who won't be able to recite the three laws of motion, I'm going to give him a fill in the blank mm-hmm. where he's going to be able to fill it in and then read the three laws of motion to yeah. him. So you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there's ways to differentiate that content so that it's appropriate for the student's language level. Yeah. And you have to do that in the planning stages. When you're planning your assessment for the unit, which is backwards planning, backwards mm-hmm. design, which is where a lot of teachers are starting now, Yeah. start with also plan your assessment for the ELLs, and it's okay if they don't look the same. Yeah. A kid who, like my student from Africa who's illiterate, could orally demonstrate proficiency on the content without yeah. having to do it in writing. Right. And I provided a scribe for him who would read the test to him, and he would tell her the answers. That kid was getting 100% on all of his tests. Because he understood the science or the history. He He just couldn't write it down. So when you determine your goals for your unit, determine unit goals that are applicable to those kids. Right. That that they'll be able to demonstrate proficiency in the content for you. Right. I mean, it's, it, it would be a dream for me to add, please add language goals. But, you know, that's where I would start. Yeah. Don't get to the end of your unit and then go to your ELL teacher and say, I need this test modified. They ah, can't, okay. They can't modify the test for you when they don't know what you've taught. Like, you right. have to know what you're expecting a kid to learn. Yes. And you have to plan that test appropriately. Policy level now. What changes would you like to see in terms of English language learners? I would like to see an alignment of our assessment system with what we understand about language acquisition. Okay, what would that look like? Students would not be tested in um, content areas until they're in the country for five to seven years or have demonstrated academic language proficiency on an access test or some sort of a test. Because the current policy disgusts me. I mean, is it I, still two years? One. It's one now. And it's not even one year. It is one exemption. So, for example, I had a student who enrolled in um, on May 8 of last year during the week of, it's the week, he enrolled like the Friday mm-hmm. before testing mm-hmm. started. Well, then he took his exemption that year. Even he, though he, he tested that no, year. No, no, he took it. You get a one exemption. What, okay, got so it. So he got that exemption, took it, you know, he's in school for right. all of a day, yeah. and he gets his testing exemption, has one more week of school, and then he goes on summer vacation, returns in the fall, essentially starting his first year in U.S. schools, and has to take the entire set of accountability right. tests for the following school year because his exemption was used up the year before. Even though he hasn't technically even been in school for right. a full year at that point. And then add to that the fact that there's an eroding system of modifications and test assessment because they're so concerned about consistency, which is understandable, but they're not compensating for that in any way by saying, okay, we're taking away readers, we're taking away paraphrasers, we're taking away prompting and cueing notebooks. We took down all of the stuff that we have on the walls that act as cues for students who are learning in this new way. To demonstrate their proficiency on this test, because we need to have an even playing field. Yeah, we're the playing field doesn't start even just by taking all the. I mean, it's just it's disgusting to me. I, 
I would love to give the governor of our state a test in rudimentary Spanish and just, you know, say here, you know. Yeah. But we took, we had an explore test we had to give to our students, and um, it, it's supposed to take, it's four 30-minute tests. Mm-hmm. We had readers reading the test to them. It took six hours for us to administer that test by the time we were done administering the test to the students. So because because you were using readers. Because the readers and the kids could ask for paraphrases of questions. Yeah. And they were, you know, at the time those were appropriate accommodations. And the kids were putting forth 100% effort. And we took six hours to test them over the course of a day. And that, would you, you'd like to see that? It's cruel. To do to yeah, do that, yeah, it's, it's inhumane. It's cruel. I would pull my child out of school if I knew that my my daughter was going to go through six hours of standard. Because you saw, did it have a real negative impact on the kids that day? They were tired. They were um, totally participating. My bigger concern is the long term effect of constantly testing kids on stuff that is so far beyond their reach that they can't do it. Yeah. That when they get to the point that it is not beyond their reach, yeah. they have learned that they can't do it. And so when it actually might be a valid test for them, right. you don't get valid results because they've quit. Like, how many times do you want to do something you can't do? Right. You know what I mean? Yep. And so. And on top of that, there's this incredible erosion of trust with me because I mm. tell my students all the time in my class, I will never give you a test. I will never personally give you a test that I don't think you can do. Yeah. I will never ask you to do a task that I don't think you can do. Mm -hmm. I think that's unethical as a teacher mm -hmm. to give kids. I think there's stuff that they need to learn and they need to reach for. It's not that I teach above their level, but I won't give them something that's beyond their reach. Right. And yet, we are taking several days out of every school year and mm -hmm. sitting them in a room mm -hmm. now with a CD player or a tape recorder where, that reads to them this entire test that's so far beyond their understanding that it's mm -hmm. contradicting the relationship that I've yeah. built with them over the yep. course of the year to trust me. They trust me yeah. not to do that to them. Well, and, and if then, you're supposed to present right. a professional demeanor right. that this is an important right. test, and, and you, right. I mean, at the very least, you should be able to say, right. I think it's crap that you have to take yeah. this, and then you maintain the trust right. with them. But. Right. Well, and then, you know, to say to them, look, this year it really doesn't matter, but next year it's very yeah. important. It's like, you know, yeah. how much how much can you do that? You know, and so it's, it's, it's soul-sucking, just awful. How strong is there a, of a lobby to try to change that? And is that just state by state, or is that on a national level? Gosh, I hope it's not national, because I would hate to think that we're doing this to kids all over the country. But individual people like me get really fired up and try to do something, and nothing happens. Yeah. You know, and, and to talk... I, I mean, there's an incredibly powerful lobby with TESOL, the Teachers of English to Speakers of Other Languages, and there's you know, the state-level TESOL boards, and everybody contributes, but it seems to be that people who are making the rules for education don't understand education, yeah. and then you add to that, they don't understand second language learning. Right. And so really, you know, I mean, how many complaints about the standardized testing system do we get? It, it's like the testing system isn't good, but then I'm complaining about it for ELLs. It's like, well, you know, let's fix it for the regular kids first. Yeah. I, did, I did air quotes again. <laughs> <laughs> but let's fix it for the regular kids first before we even mm -hmm. worry about how it's going to impact mm -hmm. the ELLs. Mm -hmm. And so they seem like such a secondary concern. So sort of whatever about that. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. 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 
So suppose this five to seven year were put in place, mm-hmm. and that um, and that's that five to seven year comes just from your working with those kids. That that's about. No, maybe in front no, of no, no, that's no. Re- research-based. Okay. Academic yeah. language proficiency requires five to seven years okay. in a second language, provided that you have an educational background in your first language. Got it. So kids who have formal schooling in their first language will take five to seven years to acquire academic English in their second language. This is if they live in the country where that's being spoken. Right, right. right. But you get a kid who comes in from a refugee camp in Tanzania who's never held a pencil in his life, yeah. it's going to take him longer than five to seven years okay. to develop that proficiency. Right. We are testing them within a year. Yeah, you just can't swallow. I mean, I don't know. You well, know, I mean, like, it's so disgust And it's so disgust And you tell that to people, and they shake their heads, and they're like, really? But it's, I don't know how to change it. I actually had my principal come in. And yeah. he, he said, this is wrong, wrong, wrong. And I said, yeah. yeah, I know. And then he had to be a reader on the test. Yeah. And by the third hour, he was where I was in terms of fury. Like, really? that's what you need is you need... You, well, you need people to be in there yeah, doing it. Yeah, we need it. the government. We need the people who are making the rules to come and have to administer this test to these kids for a day. And what see what happened during those three hours, though, to him? What, what do you think that buildup of was that got him to the point of being furious. Well, you're sitting there with a kid who clearly does not understand anything, and they're poised there with their pencil, like they are just going to run a marathon here, you know what I mean? And they're just waiting for your cue to ask them a question that they're going to answer. And they're intent upon doing this because you're the teacher and you've made, you know, like, so they've got this trust thing going, okay, here we go. And you read the question to them, and they, like, are in, you know what I mean? Like the kid's sitting there and they're like, I'm going to do this. And you're watching them realizing, first, they can't read. I mean, I had illiterate kids doing this test, and so they couldn't even follow which question they were on, but they were so intent on pleasing you that they wanted to do, you know. And so I think over the course of three hours, he realized that this was almost brutal punishment for these kids who, you know, were essentially like... So just going to keep stop, giving them yeah, an opportunity, there. and they're going to think, yeah. this time I'm yeah. going to get it. And it's like, I mean, nope. I remember reading a question to a kid about, like, probability. Probability questions always have bags of marbles, you know. <laughs> and I read this whole probability question to him about, you know, pulling out the marbles, da 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 And we get to the end of this thing, and he goes... And I read, you know, what are the, what are the chances that you are going to pull out a yellow marble? And the kid just looks at me and goes, yellow? <laughs> <laughs> Because it was the only... It's like, that's the yeah. word I know. I got that word. It was the only Is word. that one of the answers? <laughs> and it was so... Oh. And I was so, like... I mean, so, like... Yes, honey. <laughs> Yellow. And it, I mean, I was like, I feel like I'm just beating this kid. My my job is requiring me to... To do this, yeah. To do this. Yeah. I can't, you know, I just... If somebody... If somebody were... We're going to say, okay, we got it. We believe you. We're going to go ahead and, and we're going to we're going to make that. But we want to make sure our teachers are still right. teaching these kids. How else could we measure? Are there? And I'm guessing years ago there probably still are tests of language proficiency right. or modified tests that test the content. Where you say to this kid right. who's still illiterate, here's a ball and here's a ramp. Show me Newton's right. third law. And maybe they'd have to be. Maybe the recorder has to write down what the kid did, and it would have to actually right. be scored by somebody who can read it right. and not a machine. But 
are there other ways to make sure that kid isn't just sitting there getting right. ignored for five years? I would do a dual accountability system, one that would have modified language tests. And I think sufficiently, like, kids are a level four and five um, on a scale of one to five. So mm-hmm. kids who are level four and five are, are pretty proficient, close to peer level proficiency. Yeah. And so those kids might be able to take or would definitely be able to take the regular tests again, mm-hmm. um, with an accommodation. Perhaps they could have a reader if they needed a reader or a paraphraser if they needed a paraphraser mm-hmm. or they could use a dictionary, but some sort of just modification, right? Mm-hmm. Then we would have a level three test. Mm-hmm. And that's a content-based test mm-hmm. that has the simplified language built into it. So that somebody who understands English language learners maybe has taken the real test and has said... We're going to take that test. We're going to give them that test. This is an content. idiom they're not going to understand. It has right. nothing to do with science, but they don't know what that right. term means. We're gonna, yeah. I'm not going to put a single question on this test about baseball because baseball is an American, largely American sport. Right. And so, right. you know... That happens all the time. Yeah. It was stuff about how big is the football field, and my kids are so stuck on what is a football field. Yeah. But someone would modify a level three test, that upper level test down to be a language level that's appropriate, and then the kids still take the content test. Yeah. And then those kids who are level one and two would either have an even more modified Mm -hmm. content test or their scores and their accountability for the school would be largely based on their English language proficiency right. scores. To just get them yes. to be able to take the other tests. Yeah. Right. And so the goal of that, you would perhaps use a test like the access test and expect that those kids would show one year of academic language progress, mm-hmm. you know, be from level one to level two would be our expectation. Good. Check. This school has done what they're supposed to right. do for this kid. And then once they hit level three, they have a modified test. And level four and level five kids get accommodation. So much more complex, much more holistic. Right. Well, and I would hold schools accountable for English language proficiency development. We have a whole bunch of kids who get stuck at level three because their teachers are not developing their academic language. And they just sit there forever, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. in their low-level reading and writing. And we're not doing enough. Well, reading is assessed. But the question becomes, is reading assessed as a language problem or is reading assessed as a reading problem? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, trying to kind of, if we're really into using assessment and really into using accountability, use it for for good instead of evil, (laughs) you know what I mean? I mean, I have no problem with being held accountable for my students' teaching, but or for my students learning, but I have yet to see something that could accurately show me. Well, and that's really the issue. It's that if, if you have a hundred kids and they've got all different levels of English proficiency and they all fail the test, you don't actually know what they know because there could be 20 different reasons that they fail it. Well, and I think the slippery slope that you go down there too is that American students I mean, if it's a test of academic language proficiency, there's a lot of American students who would fall at a level three range for mm-hmm. academic language mm-hmm. proficiency. It's so, a second language, right? For and a so, lot do of they kids. get to take the modified test as well? Do we start right. giving academic language tests to everyone? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, do you get to test out of academic language proficiency? If the tests weren't so long, right, it would maybe make sense to right. give those kids both tests right. and see: right. is it an ang- academic language issue yeah. or is it a content yeah. issue? Is it? I mean. Because we're really talking about academic language, not just English. And so when we, you know, a lot of kids get stuck in ELL classes, but it's academic language. Well, so would a lot of American kids. Yeah. Yeah. So. 
Is there anything that we haven't covered that <laughs> you would like people sort of to know about this field? Mm. Um, I, I think that you should not be an ELL t- teacher unless you have um, talked to people from other countries. <laughs> and uh, mm. I, I say that in a... I come from a loving place, but <laughs> I, I'm shocked at the the lack of... You asked me very early on about the requirements for becoming an ELL yeah. teacher, and it's possible to graduate and have an endorsement or certificate in teaching ELLs without ever having talked to someone from another country. Um, yeah. I, I think that every single teacher should have some sort of ELL training and ELL endorsement. Mm-hmm. And if it were up to me, I think every single person who has to work with ELLs would need to go to a country where they don't speak the language yeah. for a week and wander around and get lost and try to get and that humility. Yo, yeah. <laughs> I got lost in Slovakia about two weeks into my stay there. And, um, I remember like, I can remember very vividly just my mind just clicking through all of this stuff. Like I was trying to find my apartment. I couldn't find my apartment. I didn't have any language because I'd only been there for two weeks. I was an idiot. I arrived in country with no language. I could count to ten. <laughs> I was an idiot. And I went hiking with a friend, and we came down from the... We're in the low Tatras, and so we came down from the, the little mountain that we climbed. And I was living in this, you know... A, communist-era housing block with all the apartments look the mm-hmm. same, but my Midwestern sensibility said, you know, don't inconvenience her and have her walk you home. So my friend said, you know where you're going? And I said, oh, sure. <laughs> and uh, she took off. And <laughs> I realized as she rounded the corner, I had no idea where I was. I walked back and forth on the street for probably 35 minutes. Just, I have no idea what to do. Like, I just... I remember just running through everything in my head and just being like, I, and the sun's going down, and of course it's getting very dramatic. So Yeah. I finally pick out this guy who looks pretty harmless because he's got a broken arm and he was drunk. And <laughs> I walked up to him and I said, Ya soma merichanka, which is, I am an American, where is Svemova 55, which was my apartment. He was so funny because he was like, oh, an American, which is really funny in itself. But then he realized, which I found out a few minutes later, how where I was. So he decides he's going to lead me home. And it's evening time in Slovakia, and all these people are sitting out on the stoops. And so as we're walking down the street, I'm walking like three feet behind him with my head sort of down in this sad little parade, and this drunk man is waving his one good arm going, Look what I found! It's an American! Everybody, look! It's an American! Isn't she a nice American? You know, sort of thing. And I'm totally doing this walk of shame on the road behind him. And I realize I'm like two blocks from my house. Like I literally oh. had to turn a corner and turn a corner, and I would have. So it wasn't a long drive. No. <laughs> <laughs> but like it was. I mean, like this absolutely most base like moment in my life of being like I have nothing but a drunk guy with a broken You're arm. Totally vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I had nothing. Yep. Nothing at all. And I mean, I think that everyone should have that experience. Like mm-hmm. it, it will change. How you treat your students, it will change how you treat your coworkers. It will just change how you view the world because you will realize you can go to you know as many trainings as you want to, but if you know that guy couldn't care less if you have a diploma. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. at the end of the day, 
it's, you're walking behind a drunk guy with a broken arm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Visit www.cultofpedagogy.com and find more great stuff for teacher nerds. Thanks and have a great day.